Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, I try to not do this too often, but if you'll indulge me, I want to begin this morning with a cheesy preacher story. There's a story the preachers tell. I have no idea if it's true or not. It probably isn't, if we're being honest. But it's a story of church camp. And uh, the, the kids were going through the line at lunch one day at church camp, and you, the kids could go through with their trays and pick up whatever they wanted as a part of their meal. And along the way, there was a basket of apples. And uh, the... The servers were concerned that maybe there wouldn't be enough apples for all the kids. And so uh, one of the servers, meaning well, laid out a sign next to the basket of apples that said, Only take one. God is watching. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And so you see that sign at the apples. You move a little farther down the line, and there is a basket full of cookies. And one of the campers, after seeing the sign next to the apples, decided to make their own sign, and they they put it next to the cookies and said, take as many as you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) We can often try to compartmentalize the sovereignty of God. God is watching the apples, and therefore that means the cookies are up for grabs. God is really concerned about my loved one who's in the hospital right now. God doesn't care all that much about whether or not I fudge the numbers at work. God cares about how often I go to church, how often I read my Bible. When it comes to how I treat people in traffic, it's not that big a deal. We can often try to compartmentalize the sovereignty, the authority of our God, but if God is God at all, He is God of all. We can often try to come to God on our own terms. We can come to God and tell Him that we will follow Him as long as things go well for us, as long as He does X, Y, and Z. We can come to God because we have to come up with something to do for a few hours on Sunday mornings in the fall before the Vikings game starts. We can come to God when life is hard and we can't figure things out on our own, but if God truly is who Scripture says that He is, we don't get to set the term. It makes absolutely no sense to look at the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe and ask him if he would be interested in applying to be our assistant. God is just as much God on Monday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon as he is on Sunday morning. If God is God at all, he is God of all. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Last week we started a new series on the life of Elijah called A Man Like Us. And we talked about how we took that title from James chapter 5. James says that Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a human being, even as we are And yet God worked through him in powerful ways. And in the context in James 5, the lesson from referring to Elijah there is that Elijah was a person. Elijah was a human being just like us, and God did incredible things through him, and therefore that must mean that God is also able to use us for his purposes as well. 
So we're taking the time to walk through the story of Elijah, not to learn about how we can be great like Elijah, but to look at how God uses Elijah and therefore how he might desire to use us. Last week we started in 1 Kings 17. Through Elijah, God confronts his people to show that that instead of worshiping another god like they are doing, they are to worship him and him alone. And through that, uh, God makes that point by Elijah announcing it will not rain again until he gives the word. So we're continuing in that same story. We're in the next chapter today in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have a Bible and want to open up to follow along as we go along. But it's important for us to keep in mind as we enter into this next chapter in the story that it begins by telling us that we're three years past Elijah's announcement that it will not rain. It's easy for us, I'm speaking from experience, it's easy to read through Scripture and skip over those markers of time. For us, it's just a few words on the page. For us, it's just flipping over to the next story. But for the people in this story, it's three years. Three years of no rain Three years of looking into the sky at each cloud and hoping that maybe this will be the one that brings rain on our crops and it never comes. Three years of doing whatever you can to make do with whatever you can find. For King Ahab, the king of Israel at this time, the the king who worships Baal instead of the Lord and is leading the people to do the same, three years of making offerings and his God not coming through. We talked last week about how Baal's supposed to be the god of storms, the god that you go to and make offerings to when you need rain. It's been three years now, and Baal hasn't done a thing. And as we start reading 1 Kings 18, we see things are getting more desperate, even for the king and his army. We're not going to read every verse of chapter 18, but in the first section of this chapter, verses 1 to 15, Ahab and his second-in-command, Obadiah, are scouring the land, looking for grass for the horses and mules for the king. Things are desperate. And not only that, but, but Elijah can't be found anywhere. The last we heard from Elijah, he was in the land of Sidon. We looked at last week. He's outside the territory of Israel. He said it won't rain until he says so, and then he disappeared. And so the thinking is, if we could just find Elijah, twist his arm a little bit, he could fix this mess. And, but we can't... We don't know where he is. But in chapter 18, as Obadiah, the the king's second in command, is traveling through the land trying to find grass sustenance for the king, for the royal horses and mules, Elijah appears. Now in the midst of all this idolatry, all this worship of Baal, Obadiah, even though he works in the royal palace, has remained faithful to the Lord. But when he runs into Elijah... He's fearful, which seems a little odd as we read the text. He's fearful that, that uh, Elijah's going to disappear, that Elijah's going to send him to go to the king with some message, that Elijah's on the way, and then before Elijah gets there, he's going to fall off the face of the earth, and we're going to lose him for three years again. And then it's going to be Obadiah's neck on the line when that happens. But Elijah makes it clear. He has reappeared. And he's reappeared with the purpose of demonstrating to King Ahab and by extension demonstrating to the entire nation of Israel that God is God of all. So we're going to pick up in the text at 1 Kings 18, 16. I'm going to read verses 16 to 19 for us. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, told him that Elijah was was back. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler 
of Israel. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. In the midst of uh, crisis management, so to speak, Ahab has pinned all the blame on Elijah. And he's not entirely wrong, I think we could say. It's just, it's, it's not totally true. In his mind, in the mind of Ahab, a, uh, Elijah is a troubler. Or, oh, another way, another translation has uh, Ahab saying to Elijah, you destroyer of Israel. One way to translate that phrase, probably the best way to translate it would be to say, you who bring ruin, you who are bringing ruin upon this nation, upon Israel. In the mind of Ahab, Elijah is tearing the nation apart at the seams. And maybe he is. But if we're looking at things from the perspective of Elijah, if we're looking at things from the perspective of God, we see things a little differently. Uh, yes, Elijah is the one who said it's not going to rain until he says so. But the reason he made that proclamation is because of Israel's rebellion, led by King Ahab. Elijah's not the one bringing ruin, the one destroying the nation. He is the one exposing that destruction. He's the one calling the nation out of that destruction back into life with the one who actually does hold power over all things. Just like a surgeon doesn't cut you open to hurt you, but to save you from a bigger problem, God is making the nation of Israel uncomfortable, but it is for the sake of bringing them out of their rebellion and back into the covenant relationship he had established with them. And so to make that abundantly clear, Elijah proposes this contest to decide who actually is the most powerful God, who actually does control things in Israel. It's not quite arguing about whose dad could beat up whose dad on the playground, but it might be headed that way. Elijah chooses Mount Carmel, one of the highest points in the land, and so because of the high elevation, the thinking would be that you know this is a place where it's easier for a deity to observe what's going on and intervene if they so choose, which for the record is the same logic I apply when I say that the Denver Broncos are God's favorite football team. But that's a conversation for a different day. They play Pittsburgh this afternoon. We'll see how it goes. Elijah says he will stand on the side of God with the entire power of the state aligned against him. King Ahab, who worships Baal and who wants Elijah dead, will be there with 450 prophets of one false god, 400 prophets of another false god. All, uh, and the text says that these are all prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. In other words, they're on the royal payroll. The odds are stacked against Elijah. We'll keep reading to see how everything plays out in verse 20 reading down to verse 24. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull 
and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. The terms of the contest that Elijah lays out here are pretty straightforward. You probably don't need me to go into much detail uh, explaining beyond what Elijah says in these verses, but it's important for us to notice. Elijah's bringing the nation of Israel to a point of reckoning. Let's settle, truly, once and for all, who actually is God. Is it the Lord? Is it Yahweh? Or is it Baal? But I want to drill in on that statement in verse 21. How long will you waver between two opinions? At the end of the day, the whole point of Elijah's ministry is really that simple. God is the one, the Lord is the one who redeemed the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the one who provided for them every day for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness, who gave them his law to clearly reveal to them who he was and how to have relationship with him and how they were to live in response to what he had done for them, the one who had led them into the land that he had promised to give to their ancestor Abraham, and now they're wavering. They weren't so sure if their God, if the Lord, was really still as good as he used to be. They were starting to look around at the other nations and the gods that they worshipped and thought, those nations have it pretty good. They might have it better than we do. Maybe, maybe we need to worship those other gods as well. And that's where it starts. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll still you know, worship the God of Israel. We'll still you know, have Passover. We'll still fast on the Day of Atonement like the law says that we will. But... You know, we'll just offer sacrifices to Baal too, just, just to be safe, just to have our bases covered. And now they're wavering. Really, the Hebrew word there means that they're, they're limping between two opinions, limping back and forth. The mindset everywhere else in the ancient world outside of Israel was, was to offer sacrifices to whatever God you thought would help you get ahead. If you wanted to have children, you went to the god or the goddess of fertility. If you wanted success in war, you went to the god of war. If you wanted rain, you were supposed to be able to go to Baal. Wavering was the name of the game and the theology of the ancient world. But it does not work with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord. And hear me, I want to say this with as much love as I can. But I wonder if there are some of us who need to answer Elijah's question for ourselves about how long will we keep wavering. Jesus does something similar in the Gospels with this character we refer to as the rich young ruler. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell us about Jesus interacting with this figure who comes to Jesus. He, he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And at first Jesus says to him, well, you know what to do, keep the law, and this this figure, this, this uh, rich young ruler responds and says, I've, I've done that ever since I was a kid. And Jesus says to him in Matthew 19, 21, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Now Jesus doesn't give that command uh, because that's the bar that every single person is required to jump over if they want to follow Jesus, but this rich young ruler that Jesus interacts with in this story, to use the language Elijah uses in 1 Kings 18, is wavering. 
wavering between trusting in God and trusting in his wealth. And Jesus confronts that and exposes it. And he goes away sad because Jesus calls him out of his wavering. And I wonder if there are some of us today that need the reminder of this passage to no longer waver between two opinions, to no longer uh, just trust in God when it's convenient and things are going well, but also trusting in whatever we might fill in the blank with. And I don't say that because I really enjoy getting up here and trying to make as many people feel bad as I can, but because just like how God is calling his people in this passage to trust in him and in him alone, sometimes we need that reminder as well because our God is God over all. Our world today can sometimes treat spirituality like it's a grab bag. Whatever works for you is what works for you, and that's well and good. And that is not how our God reveals himself. The people of Israel were worshiping Baal because it was, they thought it would meet their needs. And maybe if the Lord could meet their needs, then they would worship him as well. And that is simply not the terms on which we approach our God. And that's not just a problem out there. Everyone else has messed up, but at least we have it figured out in here. There are all sorts of things each and every day that might compete for our allegiance that, that tell us that we can believe in God and that's fine. It's just if you really want to enjoy life, you're going to need something else as well. And that is not true. God is God of all. Today, just as much as he is in 1 Kings 18. So just as the nation of Israel needed to be reminded in this passage, maybe we need to be reminded today of the supremacy of our God. Let's see how God demonstrates that, continuing at verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Uh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. There was no response. No one answered. They danced around uh, the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's, perhaps he's deep in thought or, or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he must be awakened. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. They did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today 
that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Notice how the, the practice of the prophets of Baal mainly consists of them simply doing whatever they think will get their God's attention. I mean, if this is the big, the big showdown, the big battle, then surely Baal will show up. But it doesn't work. Elijah mocks them as they continue to do whatever they think will get their God to act, even going so far as to cut themselves with swords and spears, thinking surely the, the flow of blood will get Baal's attention. Through all those actions, there's an assumption running underneath that the divine can be reached by getting their attention. If things aren't going the way you want right now, that must mean you haven't done enough to get their attention. Yet, nothing comes of it. The narrator drives that point home for us there in verse 29. There's no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And by contrast, you have Elijah. Instead of a dramatic presentation, they're simply rebuilding the altar of the Lord. Instead of dancing and slashing and causing a flow of blood, he takes the time to stack the deck against God as much as he can. He soaks the altar with water, the sacrifice, the ground, all around. He makes it extremely clear that if fire is going to come from anywhere, it is going to have to come from God. And after all that, Elijah offers this simple prayer that God would demonstrate clearly that He is the one true God and that His people would turn back to Him. And from that, God shows up. In a moment, fire falls on the sacrifice. It burns up everything around it. The God of all had not gone anywhere. He didn't require an elaborate presentation. Elijah was not required to wait for his office hours to see if he could get an appointment. The God who is God of all had not gone anywhere. And he demonstrates that definitively. And with that demonstration comes recognition from the people that the Lord, that Yahweh is the one true God. And they begin to chant that truth. And then Elijah directs the people to do something that we might think of as a little over the top there in verse 40. Seize the prophets of Baal, put them to death. And we might think of that as a little too intense, but that is the end result of idolatry of worshiping other gods instead of the one true God. And across Scripture, God does not react kindly to those who lead His people away from Him. And if Scripture is right, in Romans 6, when Paul writes that the wages of sin is death, it shouldn't shock us to see the sin of idolatry punished. God takes sin seriously because it has serious consequences on those who continue in the practice of it. And yet, even in the face of judgment, there is grace. We see grace at the end of this chapter. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, 
put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. He went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is the end of that three-year period where the nation of Israel has experienced God's judgment through withholding rain. God's people are guilty of spiritual adultery, of worshiping other gods, and through Elijah, God has been calling his people back into relationship with him in order that they avoid destruction. God's judgment in this passage has the goal of restoration. God is trying to get his people to see the futility of their idolatry, to see that he's the only God who can be trusted. And now... As the people have seen this demonstration of his supremacy over all things, they also experience his grace through sending rain. And I understand that grace might sound like an odd word to use to describe what happens at the end of this story, but I think that's what's happening. Notice King Ahab's really passive in these verses. He gets orders from Elijah and he does what Elijah says, and that's really about it. We don't see repentance, we don't see confession from the king. As we keep reading in the story over the next few weeks, we'll see that even though Ahab and Jezebel get a clear demonstration in this chapter that God is God over all, it doesn't change that much about their own lives or their leadership of the nation of Israel. And yet, as incomplete as their repentance might be, God sends rain. God empowers Elijah to run ahead of Ahab in the form of a royal procession announcing to everyone along the way as they travel to Jezreel that God is sending rain, even if his people might not have turned their hearts fully back to him at this point. And that's where we leave things off this week. God is gracious to his people, even when he confronts us in our sin. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, that he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God is God of all, and yet he does not use that supremacy to rule as a tyrant. He is gracious, even to people who have walked away from him, even to people who have rejected his authority, even to people who have struck out to figure things out on their own. And that reality should not cause us to minimize the seriousness of sin. It should cause us to recognize how even in our rebellion, God still desires us. God's goal in this passage is not to get the people to realize he's the one true God, God over all, and therefore they have to cower in fear before him before he rains down fire in heaven on all of them just like he did on this sacrifice. God's goal is to get them to see that he is the one God over all, so that they can come back, so that they can live in relationship with him as they had been called to do as his people. And the same is true today. God is God over all, and that truth invites us into life with him. 
If you find yourself compartmentalizing God, giving Him control over some areas of life, but not over others, wavering between God and idols like the nation of Israel in this passage, know that God is God over all, and therefore He can be trusted. If God is who Scripture says that He is, He's the only thing worthy of our worship, the only thing worthy of our trust. If you don't have a relationship with God and all this talk of Him having supremacy and sovereignty and authority over all things sounds a little overbearing, God is not out to get you in the same way that a speed limit sign is not out to get you. A speed limit sign is giving you the parameters within which you can function best while you are driving. And in the same way, God demonstrates to us that He is the God of all so that we can live in response to that reality. Because it's when we live in line with that reality where we, as God's creation, function best. So no matter where you are this morning, the call of this passage is to recognize that God is God of all. And therefore, He can be trusted in all things, and it is only by trusting in this God who has authority over all things that we find true life. Let's pray. God, You're good. You rule over all things. You have supremacy over all. And yet, you desire a relationship with us. You draw near to us in your Son. You invite us into life with you because you are a good and loving Father. God, forgive us when we trust in things aside from you. Forgive us for when we think we need you plus something else. Remind us of your goodness to us. Remind us of your control over all things. Remind us of the fact that you are all that we need. Help us put our hope and our trust in you. Help us live in light of the fact that you are the God of all, that you go with us no matter where we might be led. It's because of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 